Hello, and welcome to this special podcast from Standard Chartered. I'm Anisha Tank. In this episode, we're exploring how to unlock finance for emerging markets infrastructure in Asia. The data shows us that the need is real and pretty urgent. In its last major study of the issue back in 2017, the Asian Development Bank estimated that developing countries in Asia and the Pacific should invest $26 trillion to meet the Sustainable Development Goals by 2030. Now that is about $1.7 trillion per year. But why? Well, this is the level of investment that's needed for us to see those countries surveyed achieve stable growth, eradicate poverty, and urgently respond to the climate emergency. But here's the deal. The ADB also says the region invests only an estimated $880 billion in infrastructure per year. And that's only just over half of what they actually need. So joining me to address the urgent topic of how to finance that gap a panel of guests with a 360 view of the story. Alba Kilic joins us. He's Global Head, Project and Export Finance at Standard Chartered. Ramon Thomas, a CEO, Bayfront Infrastructure Management. Fatima Al-Suedi, Team Leader, Development and Investment for Asia Pacific at Mazdar. And last but by no means least, Harsha Agrawal, Partner and Head of the entire Asia Pacific region at I Squared Capital. All right, let's begin with Alpa. Outline for us why it's so important to talk about the infrastructure financing gap. The figures I shared, they were from 2017. It's now 2021. So what does that picture look like today? Firstly, it's very important to talk about infrastructure gap because infrastructure directly impacts the lives of people. Better infrastructure means reliable power generation, cleaner water and sanitation. Uh, better roads, railways, better education, better hospitals. In the end, it means higher employment and better quality of life. Now, whenever we talk about this gap in investments, I somehow think about a particular day. It's a partly sunny, partly cloudy day that we all would have seen many times in our lives. On that day, if you look at the skies at a certain direction, you may see a bright sunshine and blue skies. And yet, when you turn your head to the other way, you may see some clouds and darkness. And that's how I feel about the gap in infrastructure investments in emerging markets. You provided some very important figures in the beginning. Let me also share a couple of interesting figures, if I may. An estimate by the Global Infrastructure Hub, which is a G20 initiative, forecasts that the global cumulative infrastructure investment gap will reach $15 trillion by 2040, out of which $10 trillion will be the gap in emerging markets. Now, 80% of that $10 trillion will be from the emerging Asia and China. These are huge and scary numbers, and that's the dark side in the sky. But at the same time, it's expected that the infrastructure investments that will get done globally will reach $66 trillion by 2040. And out of this amount, it's expected that $43 trillion will be invested into the emerging markets. And that is the sunshine and the bright side. We don't have a capital problem in the world. We don't have a liquidity problem. We just need to find the right ways, right structures, and right risk-return balances so that the capital flows into where it is needed most. During COP26, Standard Chartered Bank has announced its commitment to mobilize $300 billion in green and transition finance by the end of the decade. We are very proud of this because we believe we can help channel financial resources to our core markets. But when you look at this $300 billion with the gap that you and I highlighted, it's not going to be enough. Therefore, we will need everyone. We will need the governments. We will need the development banks, investors, and ECAs. We need to come up with innovative structures to cover the gap. You asked me about 2017 versus 2021. I think the pace of investments have increased, but the gap is still there. 
And with that, let's move to Fatima, who is in the development space. Tell us a little bit more about how urgent this need is from a really practical point of view. You're based in Indonesia. Pollution is a huge problem there. It's of great magnitude. Also, newly drafted climate targets are very ambitious, very important. What's expected of you at, at Mazda as a developer? Mazda, as a global leader in renewable energy, we're expected to harvest our in-house technical expertise that we've gathered over the past 15 years to amplify our growth across the entire world. We're active in more than 35 countries with capacity of nearly 14 gigawatts in different technologies across the renewable energy sector. And we're also expected to double our capacity in the coming few years, given the need around the world. We're also expected to help governments in shaping the renewable energy policies and support them to achieve their own clean energy targets. One of the top requirements in our investment and development criteria is value creation. A successful greenfield development requires strong understanding of the market, dynamics of the key stakeholders, uh, and the needs of the country itself. As a developer, we're expected to align our ambitions together with the strategies set by those countries. Not only are we advancing the country's uh, renewable energy portfolio, but we're expected to contribute, of course, to the community development around the area of the project and even Indonesia as a, as a country, as well as knowledge transfer. It's also very important to make sure we're aligned with the needs of the country. Let's talk a little bit more about renewables. Harsh, this is a space in which you have a lot of experience. An outsider might wonder why more solar farms, for example, aren't being built in places like Asia. It's close to the equator. They get a lot of reliable sun. But perhaps you can give us a better idea of what this actually means. There's an opportunity for all of us to build back better post-COVID. Specifically focusing on renewables, Asia has a couple of specific challenges and opportunities. One, land area in Asia isn't necessarily the largest, especially if you look at some of the smaller countries. We've talked about Indonesia, but also Philippines. Taiwan and other island-based countries. And you need to come up with unique solutions. Some of those solutions are floating solar. Some of those solutions can be rooftop and decentralized solar. Also offshore wind and nearshore wind. And very briefly, Harsh, I just want to ask you a quick follow-up question because you said, you mentioned this phrase, build back better. This was a phrase that has been taken up all over the world post-COVID. What changed? Because this does affect the infrastructure story, doesn't it? Let me take a specific example, maybe uh, in the digital infrastructure sector. Look at how we used to interact prior to COVID and look at how we're interacting on this podcast today. We're sitting in different countries and, and are interacting. And uh, this has now become status quo. So uh, a substantial increase in the amount of data that is being consumed. Now, we have an opportunity to leapfrog that technology in Asia and really get into the latest and actually build back that digital infrastructure today, which is going in some markets from 3G directly to 5G. There's also an opportunity here for investors, of course, for more. Can they expect to make large returns on these infrastructure projects that we're talking about in emerging markets? Because there's always been traditional risk associated with this, which is higher than other potential investments. And as I understand it, at Bayfront, you are facilitating faster financing, and also smoother financing, but how are you doing it? What we try to do is to create an avenue for this large wall of money that is present in the institutional uh, market to find a home in Asia infrastructure, primarily debt. Now, the way we do this is by going out 
and approaching banks that are traditionally the originators of project finance debt in the Asia-Pacific area and offer to buy these loans off their balance sheets in an attempt to recycle their balance sheets. We then take these assets, warehouse them, securitize them and distribute them to institutional investors. Now, banks find this really interesting because what they're really good at and what they'd like to continue doing is origination. What institutional investors like is a portfolio of mature assets across these particular geographies uh, in an easy risk-reward format. And that's exactly what Payfront does. Over the last few years, we've done two such transactions where we've securitized and placed listed and rated notes with institutional investors. And these are primarily insurance companies, pension funds, asset managers, multilaterals, as well as banks. These are the investors who actually look to place money in these particular categories of, of investment product. We look at a large number of countries. In our last transaction, we did 13 countries across Asia Pacific and Australia. We did eight industry sectors with uh, conventional and renewable power being the largest. A big, big focus on sustainability. And we do this by buying such assets, primarily solar, wind, and runoff river hydro projects, and doing a similar packaging to the securitization route. Our two transactions have shown that there is very strong interest among investors, to your point. They are very keen to look at this format because it provides them, through securitization, a menu of risk-reward payoffs. And depending on where their, their appetite is, they have the ability to choose from a capital structure that we present to them, ranging from triple A at the highest end of the risk spectrum, all the way to triple B at the lower end and with commensurate pricing. Alpa, interesting there, Pramod was talking about there being a wall of money, but wherever there is a wall of money, you can expect banks to be involved. I think the banks will have a very big role to play in this, but it's not only the financial commitments and resources that banks can allocate to this space. Standard Chartered Bank have offices in 22 Asian markets and 24 offices in the Middle East and Africa. Now, we talked about the gap. If we take Asia for an example, despite the region's huge infrastructure investments over the past decade, over 400 million Asians still lack electricity and roughly 300 million have no access to safe drinking water and 1.5 billion people lack basic sanitation. So these are the daily needs that we are talking about. Many of our markets still reliant on fossil fuels for primary energy. There's an urgent need to a transition to a net zero economy and the need to support ongoing economic development. This just transition encompasses job creation, new economies, education, and adequate social safety systems, as well as securing a low carbon economic future. Now, as a global institution, we have relationship with governments around the world. We work with the multilaterals. We work with the development banks, the likes of the World Bank and Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, Africa Development Bank. We have partnerships with them. We have clients all around the world who wants to understand and invest in these markets, Mazdar and I-Square Capital are two great examples of it. We are very proud to be part of the structure that Promo talked about, but we need more banks coming into these platforms. If you look at this as an ecosystem, banks have the ability to build the connectivity between where the actual need is and where the capital comes from. Therefore, I think we will continue to play a big role and bring it all together. Fatima, we've heard about how there is a wall of money, but a wall of money doesn't mean that you don't face challenges there are friction points, there are pain points. Can you tell us what they are, why they happen, and what can be done about them? 
Despite the ambitious targets for clean energy set by the government, 23% by 2025, we found that the Indonesian market is not yet fully prepared for utility-scale renewable energy projects. Indonesian manufacturing facilities cannot yet support megawatt-sized projects due to limited production capabilities, including for the solar uh, industry. One of the other challenges as well is relating to high local content requirements imposed by the government in Indonesia. This means some heavy lifting needs to be done on the part of the investors. Looking at the overall investment process that we went through for the Chirata project as an example, at Mazdar, we were very fortunate to have great partners who helped us navigate the business environment within Indonesia. We also had a big support from our uh, lenders on the project, Standard Chartered being one of them. So there's always ways to make things easier for outside investors as a government. Alleviating some red tape would be beneficial and it would increase the appetite of investors. Outside investors also need to operate within a clear and predictable regulatory environment, meaning we are seeing new regulations in Indonesia that are introducing flexibility towards foreign investors, which is a good thing. In general, I would like to say investing in a new market is definitely a learning curve for all parties, and it's important to recognize what is hampering investment and development in a country and to address those obstacles to ensure future collaborations are smoother and more efficient for all stakeholders. Hirsch, I think it's really important what Fatima was pointing out there is the the character and the nature of so many of the countries. We talk about Asia, it's massive, right? And we're talking about lots of different countries, different cultures, different approaches, all on different parts of the growth curve. I think that's really important to note, isn't it? Because I suppose you can't come up with a one frame fits all approach. Absolutely, Manisha. I think that's spot on. We have local investment teams across Asia. I think for us, that's very important because, as you rightly said, markets in South Asia are very different than markets in North Asia. So one of the key things for us is to really have local on-the-ground investment as well as operations teams and partner with uh, local professionals to build up those organizations. You have to build projects that are sustainable, that are economical, and hence they are actually supported by the local population and the local users. And by extension, Harsh, earlier you talked about digital infrastructure, but Alpa then made a really important point, which was you've still got people who don't even have access to electricity. And I feel this big divergence between, on the one hand, we're talking about 5G and everybody having a mobile phone. And on the other hand, we're talking about people who still don't have access to water or electricity. I mean, come on, what's going on here? That's one of the dichotomy, right, that we see every day in this part of the world. But you have to also take uh, some of the positives away from that. When some of COVID-related events happened, payment systems took off across Asia. People who may not have had some of the amenities that you talked about were getting on mobile phones and actually paying some of their bills for the first time. Some people were actually getting mobile phones for the first time. And those instances of people getting paid on a mobile changed their life. And if that did not exist they would have been in a very different position. I think that we are able to use technology for, and I think that is one of the benefits for us in Asia, that we can certainly use this technology to leapfrog some of the physical limitations we have and hopefully give people a better life. Pramod, earlier you talked about institutional investors and the wall of money. Well, what happens when you get private investors involved as well? When that private money and that institutional money, all of it comes together, then what? Very often there's a happy confluence because objectives sometimes are aligned, especially when it comes to looking at sustainable oriented projects. 
in our last transaction, 30% of the capital structure was in the form of sustainable finance uh, projects. These were private as well as institutional investors that were specifically looking for projects that had those particular characteristics. We were able to sort of create a specific set of notes that cater to this particular need. Platforms like ours, where we have credible shareholders, we are able to project a complementary proposition to banks. Uh, we don't compete with them in any shape or form. On the other hand, we actually complement what they wish to do, which is recycle. And by presenting ourselves as an honest intermediary uh, between the banks on the one hand and the institutions on the other, very often institutions that are looking for sustainable product, we are able to increase this particular collaboration that addresses the needs of these particular jurisdictions. Well, I'm glad that you raised collaboration. Alpa, perhaps you can share with us how this works in practice. The short answer is we need everyone. We need the emerging market countries and governments to establish credible investment plans so that they provide the right regulatory environment, uh, which will allow the investors to come in and invest. We need the multilaterals. We need the development finance houses. We need insurance companies, banks. We need everyone to come together. And I would like to take the opportunity to talk about a recent transaction which Standard Chartered Bank has advised and financed. It is the $1.1 billion BITA water project in Angola. The purpose was to finance a project which will allow a clean infrastructure for the potable water to be transferred to 2 million Angolans. And the unique feature of the transaction is that it's the first time in a sub-Saharan Africa country, a large group of stakeholders have come together to support a common objective under an innovative structure. The World Bank has been involved in the transaction from the beginning as the advisors to the government of Angola along with Standard Chartered Bank. But at the same time, they provided a partial guarantee to the financing. We had the Africa trade insurance in the deal providing an insurance cover. We had the international banks and we had the export credit agency. And my objective when we talk about addressing the gap in emerging markets is really to establish the right platforms, the right structure, and the right partners so that these transactions can be replicated. If we can create a platform where international banks come together and finance these projects, and we use vehicles like Bayfronts to recycle our capital so that we can move on to the next project, only then it becomes scalable, only then it becomes replicable. And only then we can talk about the real success in terms of addressing the infrastructure gap in a meaningful way. Fatima, then, across all stakeholders, collaboration is so paramount, isn't it? One of our key ingredients for success is establishing good partnerships, because collaborating with the right partner unlocks further opportunities for growth. On a holistic scale, it is also as important to have a collaborative relationship with other relevant stakeholders, such as the off-taker of the project, the lenders financing the project, and related authorities that will facilitate your local requirements because without it, you will indeed fail. As they say, it takes two to tango. <laughs> In order for us to achieve really the sustainable development goals set by the UN, or at least come close to the goals, we all need to come together and de-bottleneck challenges that reduce the appetite of investors and developers, whether it's accessibility to various financing tools, flexible uh, regulatory frameworks or others, partnerships and uh, collaboration with different stakeholders is vital for any success. Within that context, I just wanted to get a quick answer from each of you. What's the single biggest positive for investors? Also, what's the single biggest positive that you take away from this? Uh, there are so many things that I can say about what we are doing in the bank about the transactions, but one, one single positive thing comes to mind right away. It's personal. 
It's about my son. He's just started his university degree here in the UK, and he's studying geography, and he wants to focus on sustainability and sustainable development in emerging markets. So that makes me very, very pleased personally. Pramod, how about you? One of the things that I found really exciting while marketing our investment products to institutional investors, especially insurers, now, when we brought them this product, we were really talking about power projects in Vietnam. We were talking about water desalination in the Middle East. We were talking about LNG trains in Australia. And these were all markets that were outside their natural ken. And to the extent that we were able to explain to them that these markets were something that they could definitely access through this particular product, it was just interesting because it was broadening out their traditional hunting grounds, if you wish, to a much broader space that they would otherwise not directly have the time or the interest in accessing. Promote. You open their eyes and, and, and their wallets. <laughs> and their wallets. Well, that's what it's all about. The money is an energy and it's got to get things moving. Harsh, how about you? I was going to actually talk about the energy itself. You see a lot of young people. You see a lot of people trying to make a difference. And the impact that we can have collectively as financiers, I think is the biggest in Asia Pacific. Being a part of that ecosystem, being able to make an impact and having that positive energy all around you, that's the biggest positive for me. And just finally, Fatima, how about for you? One takeaway that I definitely gained from this podcast is that innovative solutions are are there, are becoming much more available, relatively speaking. So theoretically, there should not be anything stopping any of us from unlocking private investments in Asia Pacific. We, we have the solutions, we have the innovation and the expertise to grow and to develop. So why not start today? I love it. What a great place to finish. Absolutely. <laughs> why not start today? We're trying to solve global problems one podcast at a time here. So it just remains for me to thank each of you, Alpa, Pramod, Fatima and Harsh. Thank you all so much for your time. I'm Anisha Tank. Thanks for listening and goodbye.